Nigeria, welcome to the Nigerian Filmmaker, a podcast about Nigerian filmmakers, their films, and how we can build a diverse and functional industry. I'm your host, Selegot. On this episode, my guest is Oluyomi Ososonya, also known as Olu Described. He's a writer, filmmaker, and lecturer. He has written for shows like Ajoche, Enake, and Inspector K. We talk about how he got the break with his writing, the Nollywood label, and the nuances of film criticism. If you're a new listener, you're welcome and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Olu. You're welcome to the Niger Filmmaker. Thank you, Salve. Glad to be here. All right, so can you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Olu Yomi, also known as Olu Describe. I'm a writer, filmmaker. Um, sometimes I'm a lecturer on film stuff, visual literacy. Yeah. And I'm a, overall, I'm a cinephile. I just love cinema and movies, and I talk a lot about it. Okay. Um, so, yeah, um, can you tell us about um, the exact moment you fell in love with films? Uh, I'm not sure whether I can pinpoint a specific moment, but um, I've always loved films as a kid. Yeah. I've always loved um, all sorts of films. And fortunately for me, um, back in the 90s, we had um, a channel called um, TNT Classics. Yeah. And it was Cartoon Cartoon Network at six o'clock, or I think at a six o'clock or seven o'clock, turned to TNT Classics. Yeah. Till six o'clock the next day, and um, from TNT Classics, I was able to watch a lot of films from the forties, fifties, and sixties. Yeah. And even as a teenager, I was able to appreciate what people did so many years before my birth. A lot of films that were ever made before either of my parents was born yeah, and films that were made when they were still kids and I was able to relate to them. And I also had become, I had started writing um, short stories as a kid. Yeah. Like I think at maybe like age 11 or something as part of a class assignment. There was a class assignment we got and it was to write a short story. And from there, I just love writing. And somehow in my head, I equated um, writing short stories with writing stories with films. I didn't know the difference between um, a novel and a screenplay. Yeah. So whatever I wrote, I always imagined it as a movie in my head. So it was many, many years later I found out the distinction between um, screenplays and um, novels and what's what films got made out of. So um, I think some sometime in those in those years when I was watching. Films like Twelve Angry Men and The Thin Man yeah. and uh, Arsenic and Old Lace. I think that's when I fell in love with movies. And I didn't know it at the time. It was till almost 10, 15, 20 years later that I, I realized it could be a career, at least in Nigeria. Yeah. Okay, so um, you know, let's talk about um, the start of your filmmaking career. At what point did you decide to you know, take this love for film, interest in filmmaking serious? Okay, so um, it's, I think the exact moment was my graduation ceremony. Okay. So after the graduation ceremony, um, uh, somebody from my school, somebody from a different department, I was sitting with him, his brother, and somebody else, and we were just discussing life after 
at the university, what we're going to do with our careers. And one of them brought up the conversation of um, filmmaking. Yeah. And he said he was going to film school. And that's when he hit me. That's, you know what, this writing thing, which I also always thought, that, okay, I'll do this. I'll take my master's and writing will be part-time. And mm. I'll be publishing my books part-time and all that kind of stuff. But when he said that, and we during the course of the conversation, that's when he hit me that, you know what, this is something you could do. But it wasn't fully then. I, th- I still went to um, NYSC. Yeah. And um, it was still a consideration of something I could do on the side and develop on the side. But so I think during when NYSC, I read this um, book. I think it was uh, uh, Mark the Hansen book called The Power of Focus. And mm-hmm. I can't remember the specific chapter, but there was a specific chapter that just told us, um, talked about just choosing one thing and narrowing it down like on, on, on a laser. And that's when I decided, you know what, I have to find a way to make this full time. I have yeah. to find a way to do this as a career rather than, oh, I'll do it on the side, part-time, network, and all that kind of stuff. So I think there was some time during that period that I just decided, and I didn't know how it was going to happen. I had no idea. There were no film schools or at least no film schools of, of notes to, to think of at the time. Mm. And I had no idea. I think I started researching to um, foreign film schools to attend. And luckily for my for me, I had parents that didn't really object to that sudden career shift. Yeah. Completely left left way or left field of, of what I had studied or what I was even inclined to at the time. So um shortly after that, um, I think I started paying attention to the credits of um, TV shows. Any TV show I considered good at the time. Any Nigerian TV show I considered good at the time, I'd look at the credits and find out who produced it. Yeah. Which com- who was the executive producer and which company produced it. And um, at I think there was a time I paid it, um, I can't remember what series it was, but um, I think this, uh, I can't remember his name. I think it was Taj Adipiton or Taj M. The, at the time they were called Alpha Vision. And um, yeah, they're the people that used to produce everyday people and and um, was it everyday people? Not, 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 I can't remember. Um, not everyday people. Um, I can't remember. It was a it was a TV series though. Yeah. Like at the time they were called Alpha Vision Media. I can't remember what the um, remote into. I think Dotaju or Debuton or something. And I found out yeah, uh, I watched the show to the end. And I watched the credits and I saw the company name. Yeah. And I Googled it. I found that they were in Ogba. Their office was in Ogba. And I'd been developing a screenplay, a TV series at the time. My own sitcom, I developed, I'd written my own sitcom. I'd written the entire um, production Bible. And I wrote the pilot episode and two more episodes. Yeah. So um, what happened? I, I tracked down the email address or their physical address i think i made an appointment and i showed up or something i just showed up to say i wanted to talk to somebody in the writing department and i showed the guy what i had done and he was impressed but he said that he didn't have any um rules and he suggested somebody else yeah. that was looking for writers i like what nonsense is this i came to your studio uh-huh. to to see what i could start with yeah you're sending me to somebody else yeah so i didn't even call the person that he gave me his number shout out to um larry as in that was the guy that I met. So um, he gave me somebody else's number and um, I left. 
And for like three weeks, I didn't call the person. I went to, I left Lagos to, to see my folks. And, um, and one day I just said, like, you know what, what harm is he going to do to you to call this guy? And I called him, said, uh, Larry gave me your number, says, talk to you. This was like three weeks after. And like, yeah, yeah, send me a sample. And I sent him a sample. Next day he got to me, said he liked it. Can you show up at our studio tomorrow morning by night? Hmm. I didn't tell him I was out of town. I didn't tell him I was going in Lagos. Yeah. I like, sure. And to give it some context, I'm not an impulsive person. Far from it. Yeah. I'm a chronic, or I have historically been an, a chronic overthinker. Hmm. But for whatever reason, I don't know whether to the Holy Spirit at that time, I just went home, told my mom, somebody else offered me an interview in Lagos tomorrow morning. And maybe the Holy Spirit said that I even talked to her as well. She just gave me money for a plane ticket. And I just went, jump, just rushed to the airport, jumped in the plane ticket, called a friend. And Lagos said, I need a place to stay for a few days. Yeah. And the guy said, sure, come over. And I attended the interview the next day. Showed them my um, my production Bible or my um, the story Bible for for this the sitcom I created. And they were impressed. Ah, they had never seen somebody actually uncommissioned gone into so much detail of the production Bible because I had listed the premise of the show, done the world building, written biographies for yeah. each of the characters. In addition to writing biographies for each of the characters. I wrote, okay, this person and this person, this is how they meet. This is their personalities. This is their dynamics. This is why they're best friends, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Then in addition to the pilot and a few more episodes. Now, that's not mean that the pilot and something were great because when I look back, I cringe at somebody <laughs> writing work, but the were impressed had actually gone that far. Yeah. Then they gave me a test, a writing test on the spot. Then um, I think the next day they're like, okay, cool, you're hired. And that was my first official gig on a show called The Station. Okay. Shout out to Tunde Aladeshe and Ike Umedi who took a chance on me. So yeah, that's that was my first official gig and my first paid job as a as a writer. Okay. And um yeah, you've you've gone on to, you know, write on African magic shows like Ajache, Battleground, Enake and um, you also worked on Inspector K. Yes. Yeah. So um, from yeah. So yeah, from that um, from that first writing job, um, can you tell us what happened in between that time and you know you working on this um, African magic shows? Okay. So I did uh, I worked on uh, a show called Edge of Paradise. Shout out to Femi. Femi Kayode, Femi Kayode, the writer, not Femi Kayode, the minister. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he, um, one of my my head writer from from the station, yeah, was also a writer on on um, Edge of Paradise this first season. So when they were staffing the second season, he he recommended me. Femi took a chance on me. Very cool guy, very solid mentor. He took a chance on me and brought me on board, and I, so I wrote on that. Then there was a huge gap when I um, went to do um, film school and master's degree. So I was out of the country and out of the industry for a while. Yeah. And uh, there was a huge gap 
So when I came back, it took a, a, quite a long while to settle settle down or settle back. So I was doing a lot of a bunch of um, non-fiction stuff, reality TV, um, all these um, talent shows. I worked on producing as an audition producer for a couple of um, talent shows, yeah. then some other non- non-fiction stuff before eventually getting back into fiction. And, um, did some short films in between. <laughs> As a direct writer director. Yeah. Okay, so um was your film school and masters the same course or they're separate? No, no, different courses. Different courses. So okay, the film school is initially a diploma. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't really call it it's a film let me not let me not guess my film school, but um yeah, it was a diploma. Then after that, I, I went for a master's in um, creative and cultural industries at London Met. Yeah. It was a completely different, there were two completely different things. I wasn't actually planning on a master's um, initially, but um, it was something I just, shortly after film school, I just slid into it and decided to just do it yeah. in addition. Okay, so you know, um, film school was like kind of the practical, um, Kind of introduction to filmmaking and then the masters would have been you know more theoretical um in your development as a um storyteller as a filmmaker um what role did these two courses play in your understanding um well the masters wasn't really film related per se there were some modules for film but yeah. it wasn't really a film course. It was called Creative and Cultural Industries. So it's a broad spectrum mm. in, uh, of the entire creative industry, music, fashion, design, um, film, all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't specifically focused on film and cinema. So although there were some courses like screenwriting and all that kind of stuff, it wasn't really a film course. So I can't say it really had much that influence on my um, on my journey as a film storyteller or filmmaker yeah and the uh, film school itself um let me put it this way um there are, there are two factors the entire time i was in film school i i i, I was not in the headspace that allowed me to um fully enjoy it yeah because i never liked what I, was, I never liked what i was doing i was constantly in panic mode so um because I was measuring what my taste was mm. against what I was producing. Yeah. So I, I never liked I was I was constantly in state of anxiety and depression. So I can't say I um my brain wasn't taking in what was being taught. Yeah. And um it's it's if if you're familiar with um are you familiar with film rights? Yeah. Film rights. Ryan Connolly, that kind of so uh, most yeah, or video co pilots. Mm. Basically that was the type of film school I went to. So okay. it wasn't like an NYU, it wasn't like an NYU um, where it's a proper, proper cinema thing. Yeah. So I would say most of my film school wasn't my formal film school. It was listening to interviews of mm. directors talking about their process and putting about their, what's, um, I call, what's um, Soderbergh called state of mind, mm. the cinematic, cinema state of mind. So listening to interviews, I was listening to, um, I was watching DVDs with the director's commentary. Yeah. So it's helped me. It's, this is their thinking process behind why they're making this decision, or why they took the decision, or why how they solved this or that problem. 
So I think that was more of my film school than an actual film school. Yeah. Because I, I, I am I am of belief that there's some things that are instinctive and intuitive about a a great filmmaker that no film school can teach. Yeah. That intuitive things that a filmmaker will do when they're planning or even on set while they're solving an issue or they see an opportunity that film schools can teach. So there are a lot of people that can go to film school, graduates, but they turn out very generic in everything they do, or most of what they do is generic. And there are people they're called um, journey journeyman filmmakers. Mm. They are competent, they do a good job, but you're not going to look at the end credits to find out who directed this. Because it didn't really, it, although it was fun, it was entertaining, but it's not enough to say, I want to go and watch everything this person has done. Yeah. Or I want to keep, I want to keep track of everything this person has done. So, um, for me, there was a particular interview. It was a Hitchcock interview. I think he did in the 60s. And he said something. Um, he said a line about filmmaking. Tell, so tell the story visually. Let the visuals tell the story, basically, and let's keep the dialogue to a minimum. Yeah. And for me, there was a particular switch in my brain when he said that, because at that point, I'd been trying to write a lot of um, what I call ping pong dialogue, like back and forth, cool dialogue. But by the time you, you write it and there's no story, there's no basis, by the time you cut it together, it's, it's nonsense. It's people just sitting down talking back and forth and not going anywhere. But when he said that switch is when I, I sat down and wrote a little suspense film called Bliss. Yeah. And uh, it was like, uh, for me, it ended up being, I don't think it was even in it initially, but it ended up being a, like a, a little homage to Hitchcock because I already decided to give up at that point. I was just too depressed with what I was, what I was and unsatisfied with anything I was doing. Hmm. So I was just ready to throw in the towel at that point. But when he said that and I wrote something, sent it to my course mate, and like I'd like to make this. Yeah. And he did like cool. And okay, I wrote I said like four four scripts short four short scripts to him. I said I'd like to pick one of these. I want to make one of them. I just picked that particular one and before he made it he just set everything in motion and we got it made it edited and that was the first time I was actually happy with something I'd done. This was a year after film school. Yeah. So it wasn't even a, a film a film school project. It was an independent thing we just decided to do. And so that's 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 sort of what was in my film school. That's that's that um, purging process, I'm putting myself through the fire. What yeah. did you ask me again? <laughs> um, I think you somehow answered. I forgot to ask you, but um, um, you know you you worked on Bliss, and yeah, you've gone on to make some other short films like um, Honey, Bad Guys. Um, batteries not included you know being such a cinephile and um studying a lot of um i guess filmmaking history would you say um you know the kind of stories you like to tell as a writer director um that's that's a, that's an interesting question because i think it's a bit it's a bit sometimes i confuse the kind of stories i enjoy watching yeah. Versus the one I like to tell, versus the one that inspired me. Because there are films, there are filmmakers I like and I enjoy their work, but I probably don't I probably wouldn't want to make those type of films myself. Yeah. Then there are the ones that 
um, the ones that have the process, the technique, the process, the um, the the um, story evolution fascinates me and something I'd like to try. So yeah. like with Blister or Suspense, and for a while I was trying to make consciously trying to make something else that was suspense or thriller yeah. that involved mostly building and design of scenes, and it was mostly directing heavy rather than performance heavy. Yeah. But I also like things that are hilarious, that have witty banter and and great dialogue. I'm not. I don't think I've done one of those yet. I'm not sure whether um, batteries not included. Um, achieved that. Um, but um, I think as I get older, yeah. different types of stories um, interest me in what I'd like to explore yeah. as a director. Then there are some things I might not, I might want to do, but maybe as a producer yeah. rather than the one I actually go on set and start designing scenes and working with the actors and making it so I might be like to be involved in the making. Yeah. Not necessarily be the one to direct it. Okay. Okay, so at this point um I'll ask you to mention three random facts about yourself. Three random facts. Uh you're not good to I am not going to do it, but I like I like doing this voice impressions. Okay. Sometimes. There's some actors or scenes I like to imitate. I feel random facts. So, um, which other one? Let me see. I once gave up. Okay, I once say gave up, but I I missed the opportunity to meet Gary Lineker when at the height of his career. So not not now not seen his um match of the day years yeah. when he was still like captain of England. Yes. What so what happened in that? I, um. What happened in that scene? A school invited, uh, there was a school I attended at that time that invited, that he was bringing over and students had, students were encouraged, at least male students were encouraged to, um, to write an essay why they want to meet him and I'm like, I don't care, Joe. I don't want, I don't want football, yeah. I'm not interested. So I didn't, I couldn't be bothered at the time to to say, okay, yeah, let me meet this guy. Okay. So this was, I think, 91. So yeah. So you're still an active player at that time. Okay, third fact, third fact. And before the third fact, are you a football fan now? Or yeah, uh, not really. I'm not kind really. of in, I'm ex, no, I'm not kind of extremely indifferent. Yeah. And I put it. Let me put it that way. Every once in a while, yeah. If if nothing is happening and there's a match on our watch, but I don't actively seek out matches. Yeah. Okay, and the third fact. <laughs> Uh, I have, um, <laughs> it's going to sound funny, but in some, in some shape or form, I'm a Nigerian prince because my great grandmother was from royalty. Yeah. Although nobody, nobody since then has followed the, um, the line, the lineage. Yeah. But my great grand, my paternal great grandmother was a princess. Okay. All right, nice one. Um, so, you know, you, you talked about your own film school experience and now you sometimes teach at a film school. Um, of all the things you tell your students, what do you feel is, 
I mean, they are, these are things that, you know, might stay with them, they might forget. But what, what would you say are some kind of um, key, key lessons to, you know, carry along as a filmmaker that will, you know, will kind of um, help you in your journey to being would i say being a great great filmmaker what are some of those lessons that you know aspiring filmmakers should carry with them as they develop their career in the industry um well one is i mean they make a, a sort of a distinction so i for me when i tell them from my personal perspective i tell them i try to teach them how to to think visually yeah in, in the sense that I encourage them to make a tell a, make a short film with little to zero dialogue. Mm. So everything depends on how they're able to relay the story visually yeah. with images and images alone. And I tell them, you have to learn to tell a story that somebody on another, on another side of the planet that doesn't speak English and doesn't speak any Nigerian language can see the images and understand what's going on or if the sound goes off or there are no subtitles yeah at least they can they can follow 60 percent of the story and understand okay through the blocking through the framing through the composition through all those things they can understand what's going on and i encourage them to think like that in their storytelling in their directing and even in their writing when they are writing on the page yeah you try and write in in a in a in a way that the reader sees the movie on the page. Yeah. And but the, the distinction I always tell them is if you want to go global, if you want your films to travel, because if it's locally alone, a lot of people don't really care about that. Yeah. Um your the the, the buyers probably don't really care that much about that because they, they look for different things in in what they want to what their audience would accept. So, but when I tell them, think globally and um, learn to tell a story visually, force yourself to either write a screenplay or find a writer that will do like a 10 minute screenplay for you, where there's either minimal dialogue or zero dialogue. So the entire story is dependent on how you, how you make your choices in imagery. Yeah. Okay. So talking about, um, choices in imagery um you know the craft of um framing and composition you know these days technology is advancing and people are shooting at high resolutions and there's this you know thing that happens that yeah when things are shot in high resolution and they go into post um the maybe the editor like there's always that you know option for the editor to change what was intended um do you think is like a real threat um for filmmakers or it's just that the director should always you know keep a close eye on how things are progressing in that regard i think ideally with film a tv a director should um be involved intensely with post-production 
Yeah. Now, I'm not saying he should hover or hover over the editor's shoulder mm. and be micro micromanaging every everything the editor does. No, but after the first pass, leave the editor to do a first pass without you, then come in and work with them through the rest of the process. And it's essential to pick an editor that one can work with because that's probably the most person the director will spend time with on the production. Yeah. As it's, if this one is done properly, if it's not done, if it's not a rush job, and it's done properly, the editor or the director will spend weeks or months together putting the film, piecing the film together. Yeah. So if um, pre-production and production has been done properly, every choice made on set was intentional and the, the if the editor was involved early on the Inoki was shooting in this frame rate was shooting in this aspect ratio this is the kind of files we're going to be submitting and this is the resolution we're working with this is the purpose of this film yeah the editor should would respect the intent of the director because everything was intentionally made it wasn't coincidental hmm. so that should reflect in the um, in the final product. Like this guy, Chris Nolan, has been known to say that his films are not designed to be watched on airplanes or on phones. Yeah. Especially with um, Dunkirk and Tenet. Hmm. So those were things he intentioned from from the first discussion he was having with the studios. He knew what frame rates, he knew what aspect ratio, he knew what scale his films were intended to be on. Yeah. And although we will not be making those type of films, but depending on the story being told, at the scale intended and the atmosphere the, the director intends to create with the film, all those choices should still reflect in, should not be stripped away for convenience in post-production. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, film is the amalgamation of almost every um, art form known to man from music to costume design to set design to you know performance and um, writing what do you think uh, makes a good director because essentially this director is basically conducting people with multiple skills for you what what um, empowers the director to make informed decisions what's are some of the things that you know um, a good director does to prepare themselves to, you know, um, craft craft um, film. I think you you use the you use the key word there, conducting. Yeah. So a, con a director is like a, the way a music conductor can conduct a hundred 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 man hundred member orchestra. Huh different people playing different instruments, really from the same sheet, but different assignments. Yeah. A director conducts their creative team in the same way. They know when somebody needs to go ahead, somebody needs to pull back, everybody needs to be in sync, and that kind of thing. And the director is also like a, a head chef in a restaurant. Yeah. Although they are not cooking every meal, but they need to go around and decide, okay, this one needs a little bit less salt, or this one needs to boil five minutes more, yeah. or this one has not boiled enough, or don't sat set fry this one instead of sauteing it, grill this one instead of boiling it. 
that kind of thing. So in working with your team and a head chef works with a sous chef and a sous chef works with this one and that one there, the head chef has people below them that are in charge of different things. Hmm. Someone's doing the desserts, somebody's working on the soup, somebody's working on the cooked meals on our persons, that kind of thing. So they are going around making sure everybody's playing their part. Yeah. And their own yes, their division heads are are in charge of all those things. So they are not micromanaging. They're just a tastemaker. Yeah. Making sure that the the rest of people in the restaurants that come to pay for a meal are getting the full experience and nothing nothing is um, falling out of place. So at the end of the day our director is a tastemaker. And mm. director is also a, a parts part um is a storyteller. Yeah, a psychologist, a diplomat, uh, a parent, mm. a police officer. <laughs> so, as a director working with actors, there are different actors who come in with different personalities and different experiences and different egos, and different um, expectations. Yeah, and in order to get the best out of five different people with five different personalities on set, they have to know how to speak to them and. Um, calibrate each person yeah. in order to to put everybody in the correct state of mind to um, give their best f- needs for the story mm. that and serve the story there rather than serve their ego or serve their own ambition. Everybody mm. is there to serve the story, so um, it involves wearing multiple hats, and um, I think. I think a little bit of it is lost with the way technology has um, made so many things, has democratized the, the process. Yeah. And if you compare the skill set of a filmmaker in the 60s when everything was celluloid, mm. as opposed to now that anybody with a DSLR and the money can go on set and direct, uh, directing in quotation marks, yeah. and put something out there. Is a, a, the, the demands were very, very different. The expectations were very, very different. So, um, multiple, multiple things to to successfully be a great director and and make the kind of things that connect with people on a on a on a deep level. Yeah. Rather than not not just um, oh, it was nice. You move on and you forgot. Yeah. Okay, so you talked about um, the director being the tastemaker, and um, earlier on you mentioned that at the um, beginning part of your career, you you were struggling, you know, to bridge like what your taste was for film and what you were making. So, yeah. over the years, like, how have you bridged that gap? Um, I, I'm not, I'm not there yet. Not there yet. I've never, I've, both, I've never been hundred percent satisfied with anything I've, I've done. I'm, I'm probably one of my own worst critics. Think that things I've done that people like them, like, ah, really? Uh, not. Um, I'm not sh- really sure. Mm. So I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm still working on it. I'm still trying to um, evolve myself into the point where I can sit back and like, yes actually fully achieved i'm not sure it's possible to fully achieve fully achieve what i had my what in my head my, my ambition matching what i actually eventually pulled off 
Yeah. I don't think there's any filmmaker or consultant that that fully achieves what's yeah what was in their head completely. Mm. At least in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. Okay, so um, you know, right now, um, filmmakers in the industry are being referred to as Nollywood filmmakers. Some filmmakers um, object that labels. Some people say oh, they are part of um, Nollywood 2.0. Some people are like they are more into um, Nigerian cinema. Um, for you, like how? important important is it um for um i mean our industry and um the systems in place to kind of encourage um diversity in the voices of um creators and filmmakers i think it's it's very very important i think it's it's essential because it's, it really depends on the ice. I don't want to, I don't want to use the word ambition, uh-huh. but it depends on the um, the long term the long term career uh, a filmmaker wants to have. Yeah. Now there are filmmakers, there are people in in um, in Nollywood who are content with. Nigerians and Africans being their only audience members. Yeah. As in they have no they have no interest in trying to please anybody else. Let me let me put it this way. The same way Tyler Perry makes films primarily for African American audiences. Yeah. And is not really in, interested or bothered about anybody else that doesn't like his films or doesn't want to watch. That's the same way some people in Hollywood once they're not bothered about anybody else accepting their films as long as their primary key audience wants their films. Mm. Now then, staying with the African-American examples, someone like uh, uh, Barry Jenkins yeah. or uh, Spike Lee, they make films that they take to Cannes and they take to, to international film festivals because their audience, although they tell African-American stories, they tell stories, they still tell human stories that they take to places that are not primarily for African Americans and for, for global audiences. Yeah. So I, there are Nigerian filmmakers like that too. They want their stories to travel beyond Nigerian shows. They want their stories to be objectively watched and measured the same level any of their international colleagues yeah. in films will be measured. So they want the film they can take to Cannes. They want the film they can take to Toronto, and it's not measured as oh, here's this cute African making a film. It's like no, this is a good storytelling. Yeah. The the reason some people reject or do not like not want the Nollywood label because for a very long time and to mm. an extent till now, Nollywood was not taken serious seriously in film circles. Yeah. And before we wouldn't have to go international, even in Fespaco. For a very long time, Fospaco did not consider Nollywood or Nollywood filmmakers seriously. Yeah. And that's an African film festival. That's the, the, the oldest and the biggest African film festival. So that hindered a lot of people's ambitions. And people would go to workshops, go to film festivals, and they'll go to workshops, and immediately somebody hears, you're from Nigeria. Oh, you Nollywood people, and the conversation shuts down there. Uh. 
and this is not exaggeration. I know I know multiple people this has happened to. And once you mention you're from Nigeria, the conversation ends there because they already have an assumption of what type of things you produce or what kind of films you make. So when people say they don't want to be tagged Hollywood, they have legitimate reasons. But yeah. people people don't want to, a lot of people don't want to see the nuance. They don't want to see they don't want to have a discussion. Hmm. It turns into a fight immediately. Or oh, how dare you? How dare you? What do you mean? What are you trying to say? That you're mm-hmm. better than us? So they don't see that nuance. They don't see the motivation because they're not ready to discuss. It turns into an argument or a fight or antagonism. Yeah. Us versus them. So when people say they don't want to be, or they are not tagging themselves or their films, not the there's a there's a legitimate reason. Everybody has a right to their ambition or their desire or their reach. Mm. And it, sh- it shouldn't be a, a, a cause for argument or fighting. If somebody says, I want somebody in Argentina or I want somebody in in Korea to be able to watch my film, and another person, like, you know what, as long as West Africans are watching my films, I'm okay. There are different, there are different ambitions, so there, sh- there shouldn't be a need for hostility yeah. when somebody says, this is what I tag my films or I tag myself as a filmmaker. So... Um, even in the U.S., there are not everybody, not every American filmmaker is Hollywood. Yeah, they're independent filmmakers, and that has always been an established thing. Yeah, independent filmmakers who have no no ambitions or desire to work with Hollywood, no ambitions or desires to move to LA to have a career. Yeah, they're content in whatever state they're in, making their films, and there's always been that distinction between indie films and Hollywood films or studio films. Yeah. But somehow we 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 don't want to have that conversation in Nigeria. Immediately you say, I am not an old filmmaker. Somebody gets people get angry. And instead of a discussion going on on why, why do you say that? Why don't you want to be called an old filmmaker? It turns to a fight and till the next time to the next argument. So um I think that's something we need to be open to. Yeah. We need to be open to discussions yeah. rather than um, jump to extremes about why somebody is making certain decisions on what they want to be called or not called. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, talking about openness, um, there's this thing that is happening with the Nigerian audience that, um, okay, let me say some audience members feel that, um, you know, when a movie comes out, it should basically um, be relatable to them. And you know, when certain things are not going right, then they label it a bad, bad film. How do you think, you know, we can evolve as an audience in Nigeria that, you know, maybe a movie comes out, you watch it and you'll be like, okay, I can see that this movie was well made, but I'm not the audience, you know, for this thing. How do you think we can evolve our our taste in that direction mm, that's an interesting question so um it goes back to the, the thing of nuance yeah because it's not limited to it's not the word limited to um the creative industries it's limited to it's it's it spreads to everything we do as mm. a people we love extremes we love extremes in this country 
if you say you don't support this thing, that means you must be against it and you hate them. Yeah. Or if you don't support this particular interest group because you have a moral objection or you have some hesitations, oh, that means you must hate them. Yeah. So, um, and it's it's part of the foundation of this problem is there really hasn't been proper film journalism yeah. in Nigeria. And when I say film journalism, I don't talk about reviews. Everybody writes reviews nowadays. Yeah. There have always been reviews, but exploring film as an art form has never been a thing yeah. in in Nollywood. Just ex- enjoying the art form, exploring the art form, and um, those basking in the narrative or, okay, this particular filmmaker who have noticed over the course of 10 films, this is the thread of notice, the themes he or she likes to explore, the techniques he or she employs, how they break down scenes, how they design scenes. We don't talk about any of those things. Even mm. in reviews, it's mostly, oh, this person was on point, or oh, I like this person, uh, this person brought their A game. Yeah. Don't really see an exploration of the craft. And it also goes back to a lot of the filmmakers don't care about craft. Yeah. As long as they put likable actors, popular actors, funny dialogue, funny scenes, that's it. They're obligated to do. Yeah. And a lot of the audience is satisfied with that. And that's fine. People I, I like to enjoy, uh, I like to like what they like. But scenes were never. Um, using the example of the, um, the French, the French New Wave. Yeah. The French New Wave happened because a bunch of young film lovers decided, you know what, this this um, approach to filmmaking has run its course. Mm. Look at what is happening across the shores. This is like what we like to see. And they extensively wrote on filmmaking and their love for cinema and their love for this director or that director or this genre. There was extensive writing beyond beyond reviews yeah and the same thing happened um, in in the, with the american new wave when um paulding kill and and, and Saris were writing about what was going on when um the likes of scorsese and spielberg and coppola were emerging as filmmakers in the 60s yeah and even got to a point where they were corresponding with each other kill and kill and Saris loved films so much but they had almost contrasting views so they were always exploring art form and charting the journeys of, of filmmakers. Oh, this person, okay, look at the progression in his or her career. Look at the progression between this film. Look at the themes that run through um, this person's line of work and the kind of screenplays they either choose to direct or the ones they actually write themselves. Mm. So I've never really had that. And there's... Um, there's an antagonism, unfortunately, from the industry towards any writing that isn't favorable to the to the film yeah. or the filmmaker. Yeah. So a lot of writers eventually either work on eggshells what they're writing, or some people just give up. You know what's it's too exhausting trying to discuss when all I'm going to get is backlash, all I'm going to get is attacked, yeah. either by the filmmakers or their fans. So there's a mob, there's a mob behavior, both from 
the industry and their and fans of filmmakers, fans of actors towards any any discussion mm. that is not completely in favor of somebody they like. Yeah. So any discussion that's initiated just just shut down immediately. And that has happened consistently for at least let's let's start counting from when social media was available. That's yeah. consistently happened at least from last twelve years. Yeah. Any attempt at a conversation in no one's conversation gets a, a mob sort of like a mob reaction. Mm. The same way let's say um if you see something negative about Beyonce online. Yeah. <clears throat> or what's her name? Um Ariana Gandhi. Prepare to be attacked. And then whatever you say, no matter how valid it is, it's going to be shut down by people telling you to shut up, go yeah. away, accuse you of being a hater, or tell you that you haven't achieved what she has achieved, so you should shut up. Yeah. So um, until we get to a point, and I hope it's not too late because um, it's, it's, it's very embedded. And um, I don't know how often you're on Twitter, but there's a difference between Oibo Film Twitter mm. and um, Niger Film Twitter. Yeah. Oibo Film Twitter, you actually see different directors discussing back and forth with each other, their techniques, their approaches. Oh, they love this person's work. Oh, this film inspired me 20 years ago. Oh, check out this film. I really love. I think there was a time I saw, um, uh, why am I forgetting this guy's name now? Uh, there was a period like two, three years ago yeah. where um, forgotten their names. I can't believe I've forgotten their names. Um, the director of Logan, the director of um, Chris, McC- Chris McQuarrie, Chris McQuarrie, the director of Logan, director of um, Moon. Yeah. And like four of them on a regular basis, you don't see a thread between the four of them just discussing their love for films. If you didn't know who they were, you just think these are fans of filmmaking. Yeah. Not actual high high class A list filmmakers. And they're not discussing the craft, they're not discussing technique, they're just loving discussing something they loved. And we don't really do that here. Yeah. It's mostly other subject matters, mostly uh this person made this box office result, or this person uses expensive camera, or this person cast this gay list in the film. And it, it never really goes into the discussion on love for craft. Yeah. And if the filmmakers are not doing that, and the audience hasn't been conditioned or trained to love craft, then, and even the, um, the, the journalists themselves have not been fed enough craft to say, okay, this this let's discuss how this person designed this scene, or this person has approached these themes, this same theme in different ways. Mm. Let me, I know I'm going off a tangent here, but um, look at someone like Spielberg's career now. Yeah, there was a period in his in the 70s and the 80s where it was mostly there was always a theme of um. I call it fatherlessness. Other fatherlessness or a a child connecting with the father. Yeah. And at least throughout his um his mostly his eighties work. And in the nineties he switched to um historical 
types of stories. I'm Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Munich, um, um, War Horse, mm. then eventually did Lincoln. So there was a, there was a, you could look at his career, same thing with his um, friend Scorsese. Yeah. You can usually tell the kind of themes that interest them. So when a writer is going to write on Scorsese, either reviewing an individual film or exploring his career, those are things you can look at and say, okay, this is the kind of storyteller this person. These are the themes this person explores. These are the things that interest this person. Yeah. This is what they're trying to see about the world. But we don't tend to do that here. And um, part of it has to do with that the industry didn't start with filmmakers. It started with people from theater, it started with businessmen, yeah. and started people from TV. Now, there's a completely different discussion on the, the, the difference between TV and film, at least yeah. historically. It's mm. sort of changed now with prestige TV changing everything, yeah. where TV shows are more cinematic. But historically, there was a huge distinction between film and TV. And Nollywood started primarily on the TV, at least for the first 15, 18 years. At least, let's say before 2010. Yeah. You are unlikely to see uh, a Nollywood film in the cinema. So it was primarily a TV medium, which is different for cinema. Yeah. So which which affects how the film is shot, how the film is cut, how the film is transmitted, how scenes are blocked, how um, the, the um, film is edited. So because of that heavy TV, film, radio influence. It affected how our films were made. So, and that's why you usually see a difference between uh, a Nigerian film versus a, a Kenyan film or it's a South African film or that kind of thing. Yeah. But they don't, they, they had probably more, a, a longer history of cinema yeah. than we did. So um, that that's that has affected everything, from the audience to the reviewing to the writing to the um, how how the whole medium is explored. Yeah. So it's 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 more complicated than it's not it's not really a simple matter of pinning down to a specific thing huh. because it's very um complex web we have weaved over the years. Yeah. We have come to the end of this episode. Remember to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Selegal Film and the podcast at the Niger Film Pod to share your feedback. You can now support the podcast by visiting the website to donate. See you on the next episode. Have a good one. <laughs>